0: Greetings, Furidashi listeners! In this episode, we sit down to tackle Larian's colossal new game, Baldur's Gate 3. We really only scratch the surface here, but we try to focus on the many ways in which the game addresses the question of freedom, both in gameplay terms as well as thematically, and we dig into how, unlike most RPG video games, Baldur's Gate 3 actually lets you roleplay in the classic tabletop sense. If you like what we do here, you can subscribe to the podcast on Patreon, where you'll receive a bonus episode every month, as well as access to our full back catalog. Or, you can rate and review us on iTunes, if that's more your speed. No pressure, though. We're glad you're with us in whatever capacity you may choose. And so, with that out of the way, let's get on with the show.
1: One, and welcome back to another amazing episode of Furidashi Gate 3.
0: Um, I'm your host Furidashi. <laughs> <laughs> <Pretty Dutchie.
1: laughs> I am your host Laura Nash here with the lovely uh, Nicholas Aryan. Uh,
0: <laughs> I am I am a campy vampire today. I would I, I do love a Starian. Um, so mean that's Mean who fine. doesn't
1: love a Starian?
0: I'm fine with that. I am fine there, with Okay, there's there's some, that, there's some things that there are some things that a Starion does as goes along. Oh no, like, it's very mark. It's, a, <laughs> it's a very way
1: All right. So speaking of selfishness, which is uh, ourselves <laughs> yeah. today, uh, we just wanted to thank all of our Patreon subscribers. Um without you, we really wouldn't be able to kind of cover our costs and keep things kind of going as they are. So we super appreciate you. That being said, going forward, like we're gonna have a bunch of like You know, talking today about Baldur's Gate 3, and we're going to both like understand and recognize like what we need to do to serve you guys better. So stay tuned for that. Um, But we'll be talking more about, as you know, in this episode, Baldur's Gate 3. Yeah, also strangely enough, how both of us, um, whether playing single player or multiplayer, we're really excited to talk about how, you know, we were maybe we were wrong. Um, (laughs) we talked about the social aspect of tabletop and tabletop, like gaming, particularly outside of the video game kind of spectrum and Baldur's Gate three, uh, for me having, uh, four, almost five, five campaigns now. I don't know. Let's not talk about it. Uh, (laughs) I have a lot of different multiplayer games because of the nature of how socially dynamic it is. Even if you guys are kind of playing asynchronously in this open world. And so in addition to that, we've been so excited by Baldur's Gate Three is that we're going to also write something about a Substack post that's going to go out simultaneously with this episode. So go on over to our Substack at game design dot com to not only read about kind of the philosophical discussion of the relationship uh, between freedom and gameplay that we'll be talking about here today is more of a as more of a dialogue. Yeah. So. Uh, we really just want to embrace that freedom and that chaotic energy that Baldur's Gate 3 gives us. So today on Furadashi Gate 3, uh, please, uh, <laughs> please enjoy the Choose Your Own Adventure ride that we have today because we <laughs> developed a different dialogue of show notes between us to quite literally be as chaotically coherent as possible, which yeah. is, Nicholas, exactly how I am playing Baldur's Gate 3. I have an amazing <laughs> spoiler story that I'm going to put here probably around the 30-minute mark um and i i literally have a timer so that i can just insert that in so. so yeah i think
0: i think spoilery stuff we should probably push more towards the end of the episode it's gonna, we'll be, it's gonna be super to the end yeah. and what
1: i'm gonna do is i'm gonna hide the spoilers so like i know a lot of you have been we're gonna try to only talk about things that have happened in act one which is great because i actually haven't even finished act one um, but i have gotten to multiple points where i could have left act one so yeah. like that's really exciting for me, and you know, as a gamer that I am, I just keep replaying the different procedures before going to there. Which is why things that I'm gonna say, like it might be a little spoilery in terms of maybe mechanic mechanics or storytelling, but won't be too spoilery in terms of like, and this character, and then this character say this thing, and etc. So just a spoiler warning for you guys here. Sorry, the introduction's a little long, but it's you know, this is Baldur's Gate 3, and it just came out, and. All of you are probably only two hours in. Or Nicholas, who's 200. So
0: No, um, I think it... What did it take me to finish? I think I was at 80 hours when I finished. But I also... I mean, I could talk a little bit more about my experience of playing the game, but uh, especially because I, I meandered a lot. There were moments where I felt like I really... Especially in Act 2, where I felt like I had to drain every single bit of experience out of what was available. Because there were there were parts of Act Two where I felt really underleveled, um, and so I did spend a lot of time wandering around trying to find every little last drop of XP, <laughs> and th- so that was a little annoying. Um, which is why I, for my second playthrough, which I started this morning, um, I downloaded the fast XP mod because I don't want to have to go through that again.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think for me, like I got this game back, so I guess I yeah, got our histories with Baldur's Gate Three. I got Baldur's Gate 3 when it launched as early accessed for full price in 2021, I believe. Yeah, uh,
0: we even talked about it in a very early uh, Patreon episode.
1: We did talk about it. In In fact, no, it wasn't 2021.
0: It was end of 2020.
1: Wow. So I have been playing this game for over two years. And so my hours count right now is already almost hitting 90. Yeah. And... That's with a weekly multiplayer session with four player characters. I have a little bit of a duo that I didn't really play a lot of. Yeah. Um. I have my solo playthrough, which I've been doing the most, I think. And, and then one of my friends, I will be playing a little bit of that game with them uh, every week because I got my team to play it. So that's super exciting. I think there's a lot of, you can learn from Larian's design philosophy as well. Yeah. Um, so that's my history is I've actually been playing this game And I've been thinking critically about this game for, I guess, almost three years now.
0: Yeah, it'd be nearly three years. Yeah. So my hour count
1: will never be right. They'll be like, how long did it take (laughs) you to beat Baldur's Gate 3? I will literally go look. Steam says 200 hours, and uh, that's not all one playthrough. Like, I'm not, thankfully, I'll be able to see it. I've got 22 hours into my yeah uh solo so
0: yeah it is nice that you get an hour count specifically for each like set of saves each campaign that you do because yeah if you looked on steam for me it would definitely be over 100 hours but there are a lot of times when i just kind of left the game on because like i would realize around say four o'clock that i would need to like go do something but rather than like turn the game off and come back to it, I would just leave it on.
1: <laughs> no, exactly. Right. Yeah. And that's what I would say is I would love about um, Laurie and finally incorporated like the Dragon Age Inquisition character based saving model. Yeah. And so even though it's the same underlying multiplayer architecture, they had to put in a new save system kind of on top of it. And I really like that. Right. Yeah, it's good. It's very it's good.
0: good. Yeah. the The game's pretty good. Can we yeah. can we agree that the game is pretty good?
1: Oh, the game is definitely pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> like DPG, you know.
0: Okay, so, Lauren, we have um, on our menu today... Actually, let's actually begin by... Even though this is sort of further down in our show notes, um, let's begin by talking about freedom.
1: Freedom!
0: Because um, that... So, Lauren mentioned the uh, substack post that is going to be going up simultaneously with this free episode. Um, And that particular issue in the game is one that we deal in far greater depth. Um, Especially because... I get into, me specifically, because this was sort of my primary contribution, the sort of like philosophical discussions around what freedom is, and really kind of attacking the sort of shallow laissez-faire notion of freedom that people often have, which is one where (sighs) people often assume that freedom is freedom from things like freedom from oppression, freedom from enslavement, freedom from taxes or whatever bugaboo. Right-wing bugaboo happens to be the order of the day. But in the philosophical discussions of freedom, there's far more discussion of the freedom to do things, what is called positive freedom, and the way in which like social relationships, political relationships, and economic relationships are structured so as to either facilitate or work against that freedom to do um and if you want me to get briefly into what that means i can i could talk about it like so the the example that is probably um sorry go ahead
1: no i was gonna say like i think your example like before we get into an example i think the biggest thing to understand is that a lot of people when we think about freedom from and freedom to a lot of freedom from is under the idea that you were oppressed right yeah So I am freedom from oppression, right? means that nobody is actively trying to oppress you, right? But what we kind of forget, right, is we are free to wash our clothes, right? And I I use that as a very basic example because there's a lot of places in the world, right, that don't have access to, say, fresh running water or maybe as often as we do, right? Like you thinking my shirt smells dirty, I should clean it, right, is actually a freedom of choice to be dirty or to be clean. Right. You yeah. have the freedom to buy groceries at Whole Foods or the freedom to buy groceries at Aldi's right?
0: or the freedom to buy groceries at all. There are many places or in the freedoms US to buy groceries deserts. at all. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. food
1: deserts. Right. So the freedom to be able to make a choice is huge. Right. Yeah. And I think that when we look at it at games, we talk about the freedom of choice. Right. Or like how much player choice do you give right the player? And for me, Baldur's Gate three is just a huge right. Um, choices that you don't even think are choices because you think they're a part of the game yeah. are actually making a choice and that's going to be the example that I want to throw out because I was I wasn't surprised when it happened but I was like very confused as I was exploring this This thing. So
0: yeah. So actually, okay. So to use an example of something that I did, if so, we're uh, are we in agreement that like spoiling things in Act One is just going to have to be par for the course because otherwise we'll have nothing to talk about.
1: I think that it's not so much par for the course, but what I would say is like use initials for people's names, right? And so it's not too spoilery if you don't know, but if people are playing, they might be able. Okay, I'll I'll talk. That's that's the that's the same in line of what how the game does, right? When you find notes, they use an initial, and then when you meet initial. Right? You're like, oh my God, you are the person behind all of it. So there's a there's a, um, there's a potential... Act one has also yeah. been out for like three years.
0: <laughs> that's true. Yeah. So it's, it's, <laughs> so, so yeah, it's weird. I there. know the game
1: just launched three yeah. weeks ago, but guys, like some of this content has been yeah. already shared on the internet. So we apologize if we do spoiler, but we'll try to keep it spoilery light.
0: So there's a potential um, companion, initials M, just an M, because that's the only initial they have. Um, who is only available to you in the game if you make, shall we say, a fairly questionable choice. Um, and a choice that will have not just ramifications in terms of, like, what other companions you can bring along, but also will cut you off from a number of, like, long-standing quest lines. Like, it just completely cuts you off by having this person in your party. And the thing is, what's really interesting about them is not just the sort of classic, like, oh, well, you know, can I redeem this individual? But also because they are the one companion of all of them who reflects upon the others, who actually will openly talk to your character about the other companions and also just other NPCs in the world. Like, you can ask them about their opinion, and their opinions are weird. Um, But also weirdly insightful at times. But the thing is, in order to have access to do that thing, in other words, all of that sort of like really interesting dialogue and really great narrative content, in order to be able to do it, you have to drastically sacrifice a whole lot. And like the game constantly reminds you of the fact that you sacrificed it, Like you don't get, you don't get to just like do it and then get away with it. Like the the game is going to be like, there's literally a transition from one act to another where sort of you look back and be like, Oh, well you, you sure wish you could have done that. And it's like, how and then i looked looked up online how you do and it was like oh no i couldn't have done it the game is just telling me you asshole (laughs) you made this decision and we're gonna rub it in your face um so but the thing is there's this relationship but so like in facilitating what players can do there are i mean yeah there are sacrifices you have to make but There are ways in which, like, you know, if you think about it from a game design perspective, you have to sort of, like, build up the capacity to do that. Like, all of these branching storylines and sort of, like, little, like, vignettes and, like, character interactions, like, you have to consciously build that into the game. You have to create a, like, sort of a scaffolding for it. You have to get the, the VO for it. You have to get, you know, make sure that all of, like, The dialogue trees line up. You have to make sure it's not buggy as shit because it introduces a lot of complexity. But like this notion of freedom is really fundamental for like game design, especially if you're working on branching narratives, because it is the way in which you actually have to conceptualize player choice. You have to think, as Lauren was saying, you actually have to think about sort of the structure of all these things and facilitate them for the player. You can't actually conceptualize a game in terms of the sort of like more laissez-faire, like freedom from way, precisely because it's like, it's like if you want to become an astronaut, the freedom to become an astronaut or to like to travel through space, that is dependent upon like an economic, a political, and just like a basic manufacturing infrastructure to even make like the possibility of sending a single human being into space possible and that kind of freedom really sort of you can see how it sort of pervades all layers of society in the same way that this kind of freedom that Baldur's Gate 3 allows the player pervades all aspects of the game not just the dialogue trees not just the fun romantic and sexual interactions but also like basic gameplay like the freedom to like build a character in a particular way where you can have like all sorts of spells available to you or maybe you need to build out a party in such a way that you have all your bases covered in terms of like having someone who primarily does dialogue interactions having a character who primarily does like lock picking and things like that like you need to make sure that you have all of your bases covered and so to like the freedom to do more things in the game, to like lockpick doors or to get into secret places or like discover traps or detect magic or whatever, you as the player have to take the scaffolding that Larian provides you, and then you have to build on top of that to facilitate in much the same way your own play style.
1: Right, and I think that like for me, like I think when you look at the political, like kind of philosophical ideas of like freedom, like one of the big things that games does for us is actually allows us to create and simulate, right? Moral and ethical decision-making. Yeah. And so I'm gonna look at freedom of choice as moral and ethical decision-making in, in Baldur's Gate 3, because we're looking at it, not just in terms of what are the choices I have to me as a player, but when we look at game design a lot of the choices that we think of are what are the mechanical choices right players can can make and at the basic level it's like can they combat can they stealth right can yeah. they melee can they range yeah. but that's got a surface level kind of choice for me right it's just okay well what are the mechanics right what are the what is the actual just you know direct active choices that players are making yeah but I like scaffolding as a word that you mentioned because Baldur's Gate 3 really not only creates like mechanical choice, right? And yeah. a lot of that con- honestly came from Divinity Original Sin 2. I feel yeah. like Larian's actually been working on this game for like 15 years. Like I know they said six or whatever the the internet says with three years in at early access. At least since
0: 2014 when they did the Kickstarter for um, DOS, the original DOS one.
1: Yeah, yeah. honestly, yeah. Like when they, they did that, right? And I think like... Anyway, I just think they've really been building up kind of the understanding of freedom of choice here. But in yeah. Divinity Original Sin 2, there weren't really any dialogue options that chose like a path. Like it wasn't like choice driven or dialogue role play driven. It wasn't yeah. so much that <clears throat> as it was like I chose to interact with this NPC in this corner, which let me skip all of Act Three. So I've never played Act Three. Um, like any of it. Yeah. And which is just bizarre because that's like 20 or 30 hours. And that's 20 or 30 hours of content. And I think that's where I think you get to understand and really explore all of the choices of Baldur's Gate 3 is that we when we look at game design from a storytelling standpoint now, it's all about the content. Okay, yeah. how much content are you getting by making a choice versus how much content are you negating or not, or kind of taking off the table by yeah. making a choice, right? Yeah. And I think that that's what's really compelling for me about Baldur's Gate 3 is that the system's responsivity isn't just from the dialogue choicing or the branching narratives and they all kind of end up feeding into one another. It is actually the sheer amount of permutative consequences or content that is stripped off of the table.
0: Yeah. And I was thinking a little bit about this uh, yesterday when I was making dinner. Not dinner. Lunch. I don't matter. know. A meal. Me- the um, the, context, the context of me thinking no, about this no. doesn't matter. Anyway, yeah. so I was, th- I was thinking about this. And I realized that like when you're thinking about the ramifications of a, of a player's particular choice typically speaking those ramifications often have a kind of like math function so like you know oh well this character is in my party or I did this particular thing and it might like have certain effects on like future checks that I you know future like dialogue checks that I have to make or it might even have ramifications for like you say stats in you know in combat but what I found really interesting about Baldur's Gate 3 is that they found a way to make the ramifications not always math in fact not usually not math but like psychological and subjective and so by like taking it away from the like if you you make this choice it flags this thing or like it changes this boolean or like this particular integer changes and make it'll make this thing harder or easier it actually puts the player in a subjective state where they feel viscerally what is happening to their character and also, in a sense, to them. Because, like, when you are being made... So, like, when the game is rubbing these things in my face, I actually kind of feel like shit as a result because I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm stuck with her now. <laughs> like, I, I I guess I could go back the, tw- you know, twenty to a 20-hour-old, like, previous save, but I'm not going to, so I guess I just get to feel like, Shit for this. Yeah, for I actually
1: want to like talk about <laughs> that because someone was talking about how they got to a, a kind of choice moment or their choices had led them to some content that they didn't want to explore. Yeah. And they suddenly were like, I either go all the way back 20 hours or I just stick with this. And now I don't want to play the game anymore because I'm personally upset. And yeah. I think you mentioned this as like, I don't know, freedom of expression or I mean, it was choice and sacrifice, maybe? Where yeah. it was like, look, you made choices selfishly. Like yeah. you made choices. At the expense of other people in the game, why are you surprised? The content that Baldur's Gate Three is going to deliver to you is about how it kinda is shitty to yeah. not care about other people, and now you feel bad. Like yeah, no, I want. And then I your wanna... response is to, I'm, uh, I this game isn't about me anymore, so I'm <laughs> leaving. And I'm We're like, no. uh,
0: kind um, but- of. To- <laughs> But here's the thing, and this is actually what I think makes even though if you looked at it purely from a systems and mechanics perspective, everything that exists in Baldur's Gate 3, you can find somewhere else. But what makes it unique is the fact that and this and this is why in you know in the Patreon episode we're going to have to eat our own words is because what this game allows you to do is actually manufacture an identity for your character an identity that you have to habit inhabit an identity that dare I say you role play and the the fact that the role-playing ass like and it's really interesting that so many people bristle at the notion of like having actual role play like in the classical sense foisted upon them because aren't these RPGs haven't these always been RPGs and and no <laughs> but apparently not no they no. haven't no they, they really haven't, haven't been yeah. yeah
1: and i like this is the chaos part right where i go okay so this is where when we talk about role play we talk about a very specific uh, mechanic slash re- i'm gonna call it a reward system in Baldur's gate 3 because it kind of is but really guys it's just ui it's yeah. just ui and an added feature like it literally is it's it is something that they kind of took from 5e but like it's not It actually exists in 5e and no one uses it. And the reason why no one uses it is that you have a real human DM that's just like, uh, re roll your dice because I really don't want you to lose this fight, right? Or I don't want you to lose this check. Or by the way, we're talking
0: about Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition in case anyone is curious.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if any of you is also curious, Baldur's Gate 3 was not a game and is actually not a sequel to Baldur's Gate 1 or 2. It kind of is thematically. But it's really yes, a yeah. sequel to Divinity Original Send 2, so you could call this Divinity Gay Original Baldur's 3. Um, <laughs> and I think that uh, I bring this up because it has a lot of the mechanics and systems from these previous titles. And Divinity OS 2 was really built in the spy uh, kind of like in the spirit of being a tabletop kind of multiplayer experience. right? It really like that's how they um, launched it was this is a co opetition game. Right. Yeah. And it was one of the first kind of PVE, PVE kind of co op edition. And the only PVP aspect is really just you're allowed to fight your friends. Yeah. And I think that that's interesting because the game isn't like you can also then revive your friend, even if you're kind of on opposing sides. Yeah. But the game is a co op campaign. Now, in Baldur's Gate 3, you can't do that, right? Because this is a Dungeons and Dragons campaign where party members usually don't fight each other. Right. But that isn't necessarily true. This is in multiplayer. Okay. I'm sorry that I'm going a bit on a tangent here with something that they took from DD. But is that this is very important to kind of the social table talking aspect? Is that while you can throw your party members, if they're small enough, right, into combat or out of combat or whatever you want, you could also shove them and kill them, right? Yeah. Um, And in multiplayer, multiplayer, if you're the first person that joins, you could technically embody. Like, if you're the host, I could embody my friend and lock them out of playing their own character, right? You can grief people, sure. Like, that's how you could do it in D&D too, right? Um, And what I think, though, right, is that in single player, while you're inhabiting and you could potentially, like, kill off your companion members, there's something really fascinating that lets you give a higher insight into the characters, not only that, you're playing as a player, like what's your background, but yeah. all to the other companion characters. And then in multiplayer, by extension, you get to see all of your, like the human player's backgrounds and characters on a screen called inspiration. Inspiration is the d 5e mechanic where if you do something that is true to your character, you get rewarded for it by being able to reroll reroll a die. Yeah. And each player has their own set right of inspiration. In Baldur's Gate 3, this mechanic is shared. And so you can re-roll any die. It can be like outside of combat, right? Yeah. It's a dialogue choice die. But what's really fascinating is that when we talk about role play, right? And we talk about like who our character is, to be completely honest, right? We don't really ever know, or we're always playing ourselves, even at the table. Yeah. You know, I am a fire, like power hungry sorcerer who like lights everything on fire. And it's like i'm a chaos witch and it's like yes lauren you are a chaos witch but what's fascinating is that lauren's
0: revealing things about herself that maybe she doesn't
1: (laughs) if i am revealing anything on the podcast that none of you from following me i know
0: yeah it's pretty obvious that you're a chaos witch
1: yeah like ex editor or whatever or the blue actually personally i think i will i i'm not going to delete my twitter but i think i will move to like seriously move to blue sky even if no one's there i feel safer and more comfortable um, yeah, okay. Twitter's just gotten Ta-da! weird. Tangent. Yeah. Um. What I will say is like uh, inspiration rewards you for playing into your character's background and they don't really tell you how and you don't really know how and you don't know why. Now, all the origin character has a ton of, of inspiration moments, right? Yeah. But you as a mm-hmm. player character don't have that many inspiration moments. So when you get inspired, right, it's very interesting because you can play into the background of a charlatan But you're not going to get inspired the same way that Hysterian will. And it's just a little line of dialogue on the UI menu. But every time I deceive someone or every time I kind of am sneaky or kind of stealthy about how I play. It's not really a selfish run to side with Hysterian. It's more of a like self-preservation, right? And in a lot of dialogue choices, it does come into a... You know, it feels selfish or it looks bad. Like you will end up getting more people killed if you want Asterion to approve on everything, then you won't. But it is all about making fights easier. This is where it comes down to content, right? Yeah. It will be about self-preserving so that you are deceiving someone and then turning on them, right? I've done this twice now and both times Asterion has approved. And I didn't really quite understand. It wasn't until the second time I did it that I went, oh, I'm betraying an ally But I mean, they were a temporary ally, and I didn't really trust them to begin with. Like, and I shouldn't have because they are also they were a bad person. Does that make sense? And so, because I betrayed a temporary ally, Asterion was like, "Ah, you used people." But his background is charlatan, so I could play my character as a charlatan, right? Who's also deception and persuasion. But the ways I would get expired is just like, "Hey, did you trick people, right? Or hey, did you get less? Did you bribe your way out of something but not pay the money?" Did you use more deception checks than persuasion? But sometimes persuasion will also inspire you, right? And I think that that's really powerful because now I'm actually learning more about my character that I've created, who is a drow sorcerer, but is also like a noble that because I could do really innocuous things like, oh yeah, like I just, I showed that I was more powerful than you. Boom, you get inspired for being a noble. And I was like, oh, this feels a little wrong like I never play nobles and so that's why I did it and I was like I don't I don't like that I just did it because I was like oh this is funny I'm a player and I'm gonna take advantage of how you thought that I was here to collect on debt. I'm just going to collect it. And suddenly they're like, you're inspired because you exploited the working class. And I was like, I hate
0: uh, excuse this. me. Pardon? Like I chose this background for the skill proficiencies. I did not choose it thinking that I had to be an asshole. But... I did. Yeah, I did not. <laughs> exactly. Right. And that's right.
1: And that's, uh, oh, and that's the kind of content, right? That's the, wow, I mean, I chose a drow noble because you know, that's, I really did want to kind of play that way. And I don't like that the game
2: (laughs) called me out on that. Like now
1: literally I'm going, I I was just trying to be a funny chaos witch. And I've never, like, I usually play drow and you know, I was, I usually like a drow entertainer or like a drow like outcast. So I was like, I'll just play drow noble. I'll really be into it because all my friends are being into it in this run. Ha ha, ha ha. One of them's dandelion, right? So they're like a base human, like whatever oh man but now i'm like i'm going ha 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 to now like ha, 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 yeah. ha, ha. like uh i mean i wanted this but also i did i sign up for this right and well you, I think you that's, did i did you, d- you
0: did I did and that's the thing is that but what's curious is that i think why a lot of people abreact not a lot but some people abreact to it is because by and large rpgs like even though they claim that a particular character is one thing as opposed to another or like you, you you know you go into the character creator and you choose all these things for the background or you know in the classic bioware sense of the the red versus the blue you know if you're like renegade versus paragon or i don't remember what it is in code. you mean Sith versus jedi yeah, Sith versus jedi yeah so Master like
1: versus chief no i'm yeah. so sorry <laughs>
0: Master versus cheap so every every halo has two wolves inside of it (laughs) anyway but but the point is is that like those 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 aspects of the quote-unquote role play in the games they're 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 basically math they're they're mostly math they may have a little bit of they may have some ramifications well, math, that it
1: doesn't have a story attached to it just so we're well no here's it, right?
0: a, well yeah but yeah it may have some ramifications in terms of like story or like character relationships etc but what's different about this is that like it's not just the the subjective thing i was talking about before and it's not just math but it's that the math and sort of the subjective position that the player put in actually creates a kind of feedback loop and the way in which that feedback a gameplay loop for fuck's sake it's a gameplay loop (laughs) and the way that gameplay loop works is primarily through how skill checks get integrated not only into the dialogue system but also into exploration and so it creates this system where like, yes, so like if you lean into being a noble or if you lean into being a criminal or or whatever, you know, particular background you happen to have chosen, then the game will give you some math will, that will allow you to lean into that even further. So like, you know, if it gives you these inspiration rerolls, and then, you're, you know, you're going around like, you know, stealing from people's houses and like doing all sorts of like doing all sorts of lockpicking and sleight of hand checks and then and because you have a criminal background then it's giving you inspiration re-rolls as a result that then sort of creates this environment in which you can now do more of it because especially theft as you progress becomes a lot trickier to to, to pull off and a lot more dangerous because when when you get to act three and you're in the city like all sorts of shit will show up. If you get caught, a lot of shit will show up and kill you. <laughs> and so like, but it allows you to sort of lean into this persona, both in the subjective sense of like, ooh, I'm going to trick this person or like, ooh, I'm going to get away with this or ooh, I'm going to steal from them. Or in my case, you're going to go into all the rich people's houses and steal their nice clothes because all the nice clothes are in act three. And it really irritates me that that is the case. <laughs> no, I have been wanting yeah, new- yeah. nice clothes
1: and like they, they, Another storytelling mechanic is also just doing loot. I don't think so many people have never seen loot as story, but loot is story. Yeah, and yeah. all of the clothes you find in, like, act one are destitute, vagabond, like, you know, they're kind of clothes. They, they're and, they're no, they look they. bad, yeah. right? And all your origin characters start, like, pretty good, and you have homely clothes, which I think is yeah. just a beautiful English word to say ugly. <laughs> and I think that... Um, I think if this is kind of the point where I wanna talk I wanna talk about loot, right? Yeah, I wanna yeah. talk about content. But what I'm saying is like, Nicholas, you're right. Like it's man, I I I cannot avoid spoilers with a game that right you love you love about. And I am a metagamer, just whenever I play RP games, because I do wanna kind of see how other people have tackled a situation. Because yeah. I have replayed this particular uh forced fight uh in the underdark at the end of the Underdark in a kind of Forge location.
0: yeah, And
1: I have played this forced fight, um, I think four or five times now, not even fighting, just getting to the forced fight, choosing that many dialogue options, trying to see. And a lot of yeah. people would see this as coming. So before we kind of move into the skill checks and how dialogue choice is really impactful for the rest of the episode, because I think that that's great. I want to talk about, and I want to wrap up this kind of freedom of choice With also the freedom to choose not. Yeah. Right? And this fight, and I think you know what I'm talking about, Nicholas, at the end of the... Kind of before you need to get to... um, Basically, you need to get to a certain tower that's outside of your reach, and you need to kind of leave the map, right? Yeah. And before you get to the point where you leave the map, there are two ways. There's the easy way, which is above ground, but it's actually harder for lots of different reasons. And then there's the harder way that is actually easier for different reasons um yeah and you go into the underdark right so there's the overdark the overdark the- I,
0: I will say that um each one is easier or harder depending upon like which route you go with regard to the druid grove
1: yes it's harder or easier
0: because what the, the one that was hard for most people is actually easy if you do the bad thing that i alluded to earlier
1: Oh yeah, it's gonna be super easy, barely an inconvenience. So speaking of not super easy, barely a very much an inconvenience. (laughs) Um, that's what I'm saying, right? Like it it's the it's the freedom to choose and the freedom to choose not. So you talked about choice and sacrifice, and that when you make one choice, you will lock yourself out of other consequent or other content, right? Opportunities,
0: yeah. yeah. Opportunities, right? You'll lock
1: yourself out of other other opportunities, right? And I'm an opportunist. I want to make the thing that (laughs) gives me what I believe to be right the most amount of opportunities. Yeah. And in this case, right, it definitely does. Because if you align yourself with one kind of like one path initially, um, you will be made like the game will kind of scuttle you along very nicely. Right. You're playing into this flow of content, but you also have right alternatively locked yourself out of other content that could appear later. Right. So I think that's important because it's not so much it's not so much a sacrifice, right? Or like, I've never actually thought about that in games, but it is, right? Is that we are, actually, yeah, we are sacrificing as developers, right? Larian went, you are sacrificing and we are willing to sacrifice you seeing 60% of this game so that you can play 30% of this amazing permutation,
2: Yeah, right? Exactly. And
1: that's that's huge. Like, I think we need to be willing to sacrifice, right? As developers. My, my example of this, though, is very, very particular to kind of help people understand the amount of choice that is in this game and the not choice, which is different than a sacrifice. A direct choice is I decided to side with M. So this example that Lauren is giving is barely an inconvenience for me. Yeah. Did you know, Nicholas, that barely an inconvenience when you don't side with M has like five or th- like, it's a forced fight. It will always be a forced fight. And the game... Like, like it is, but how you decide to do that fight is up to you. Yeah. However, say that, um, so when you first get there, right, you kind of deceive your way in, right? Or you don't, I guess, and then you damn do what I'm gonna do anyway, but that's fine, let's move on. Um, <laughs> you kind of force you 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 kind of uh basically when you get into the underdark, there's a boat, you take a boat, you go to a place, and depending on how things run out, you could have a variety of quests that are like, Hey, save these people that are being enslaved um hey like you know side with you know you need to free another true soul that you've met yeah you need to kill that true soul right um you need to uh you can side with the the drugar which are like basically dark dwarves yeah right um or you you can do nothing right doing nothing which i didn't it's not that i didn't know it was an option it's that doing nothing is an option and doing nothing is this it's fighting through the game realizing that you don't have enough spells so you decide to take a long rest because even though the game is telling you that this person this happened
0: happened to me too as well this person
1: is you know needing to be saved and is under duress i was like yeah but i have no spells anymore this is a forced fight and there's three different ways to do the forced fight as well which i won't get into yeah but i've done every single one um and i'll and and within that i made it a little bit more difficult Uh, because I had a ranger in my party who had a bear and I wasn't actually able to talk to anyone because they immediately all go into a combat stance and run away from the bear in the underdark they're like you can't be here get your claws away from me and they all take out their crossbows to combat and if you try to click on it they just keep talking about how this bear is scaring them so say that then you remove the bear because you're like this is just a dialogue area it is not so like I long rested and instead I was like, okay, I'm going to come back. I'm going to be stronger and I'm going to methodically kill everybody now that I have a full kit. And instead I'm walking through stealthily and going, where is everyone? Everyone yep. is gone. Yep. Oh, this person is just dead now. Oh, it's because they, yeah, because yeah, they I, are just dead. Yeah. I, I just left them. Doing nothing is a choice. And I think that I will I... note
0: the same thing happens also if you fast travel away from there, because that's how it happened to me.
1: Oh, I did. I did literally... fast travel away, and it was okay.
0: Oh, really? It's well, on it.
1: So that's what I'm saying. Okay. I fast traveled away, and it's okay. And it depends on where you fast travel to. So that's what I'm saying. Oh, it's okay. doing nothing and then ignoring it for too long. So that means there's some sort of timer mechanic inside of this game, right? Yeah. And like the fact that I, so I fast traveled in the Underdark. That's okay. And if you fast travel just a little bit and you come back, it's still okay. That's why I thought a long rest would be okay because it's gamey, right? Yeah. Long rest is just a game mechanic, right? No, the long rest is a story mechanic. And I knew it's a story delivery mechanic, but it actually changes the content that the player receives if they do it during these, right? Diegetically kind of imp- like very Yeah, I mean also you will moments.
0: like especially if you go if you make the very bad decision, like you will be attacked more often in camp than you would be otherwise. So like that's one of the things that you have to sort of accept is that like a lot of the quote-unquote good characters in including the quote-unquote good companions are now just going to like ambush you and assault you and you you get a a moment initially when they show up where you can try to convince them or you can try to sort of like manipulate the situation or deceive them or whatever but it it is really cool the way in which, like, it's not just a button you press to get all your spells back. It's it's not just a more complicated button you press. It's something that is actually integrated into the patterns of gameplay and also, like, where you happen to be in sort of, like, the development of the narrative at that point. In other words, it gets integrated back in. And I agree with you. I think it's... And it... I agree with you so much that it was actually kind of disappointing to me when Larian actually removed one of these from the game. Because they had made... So um, in Act 2, there is a moment when if you take too long to do something... Like, in other words... And it's not even a ton of time. Like, if you literally just go around the room that you're in and try to loot all the stuff from the fight you just had... If you take too long doing the next thing that you're supposed to do this character will permanently leave your party and attack you and when it happened to me i was like ho- like i i did go back and sort of like okay i need to like go to an earlier save and make sure i get do this thing that i'm supposed to do but um about two days after it happened to me i saw in one of the hot fixes that larian removed it and i was like I'm not sure, like, I understand why you did it, because it is pretty drastic, like, having this particular character just removed from your party. But I'm like, also, in thinking about it, I'm kind of glad I had that experience, even though I didn't let it be canonical for my campaign, because it was precisely one of those moments when the sort of, like, the subjective position of being the player... And role playing your your party and your character had real weight to it. Like when that happened to it, like I was shocked, genuinely shocked. But in thinking back upon it in hindsight, I was like, no, this makes perfect sense because this character is behaving in a way like unlike most RPGs, like this character has a particular personality and a particular worldview and the way they understand things. And the way they work mechanically in the game actually aligns with that. And I thought that was great. And I was actually kind of sad when it was removed, even though I understood why they did it. Because there is a kind of balance, that, especially when you're designing a game, that is doing a thing that, by the way, most other games of its type just don't do. The player can feel a bit brutalized, even though it's like... But I'm that's sorry. how it works. That's how it works. <laughs> and I think
1: that like you have to, I don't want to say you have to hurt the player, but like you have to hurt the player. Like the player yeah. is gonna feel bad playing a game like this that has the methodologies of that. And I'm yeah. so glad you brought up the canon because this is what I wanted to talk about. When we talk about save states and we talk about how important they are to the role play experience, so many people say it's save scumming. And it's because yeah, a lot right of role-playing yeah. games don't really They don't auto, if they auto save, like they really rely on you to save. And a lot of players playing this type of game, I think now, because of how good they've heard it, it is, are not used to having no auto, like not having an auto save, right? And they do auto save at crucial moments, but they don't auto save all the time. This isn't a consistent auto save. It's
0: pretty pretty random when it auto saves. it's Larian, no, no, no. it's
1: Larian, not random. Okay, if you yeah, play a Larian yeah. game for as long as I have, I've been playing Larian games uh, for the past twenty twenty until some, now. Some like, moments where it
0: auto saves, I was kind of like, why? <laughs> oh, no, it, it'll auto save
1: because probably in the the past that you didn't take, like there would have been a content drop there or something. Oh, that okay, a little different. Yeah, it always saves as a very specific content drop, whether it's like a a small minutia choice or a big minutia choice. That's when all my like that's when we our group has been doing it for so long that we're just like, oh. Everybody stop. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like we just all were like, oh, oh, it's
1: auto-saving. And then we just all stop and we're like, how are you guys? Is everyone... It's interesting
0: how an autosave will trip you up more than like discovering a trap in a dungeon. That's
1: exactly. Yeah, a trap in a be-
0: dungeon you are just you just left click on it. It's like, yeah, I'm going to disarm that shit. But an autosave... I don't even like, have
1: disarming. Stop. I like, <laughs> it's like, yeah. stop.
0: Everybody fucking stop. Everybody fucking stop.
1: The game is autosaving <laughs> and something is going to happen. Like, autosaving <laughs> is a way for the DM to tell you that something is a really important and it's about to occur. Yeah. Right? And I'm like the DM being the game, right? Yeah. But I'm so glad you brought up the canon because so many people assume like have called safe scumming as something that's bad to get like a choice that maybe didn't really matter but it does and it matters to you because this moment was so drastic that it happened to you and yes it had to be one of your companions you know getting frustrated at you turning on you and murdering you but i think that oh no i killed them or you killed them right but what i'm saying is that like in your canon, you were like, I don't want this to happen. Like, I need to now go back to a point in time because my canon playthrough, it's yeah. the canon, right? And this is something from literary studies that we don't quite talk about too often because in America, at least, because derivative work is kind of frowned upon. Um and unfor- that's a really unfortunate, right? Because some derivative work is just so good. And for those of you who don't know what the word derivative means, I'm talking about fan fiction here. I'm kidding. Yeah. You all know what derivative Well, I mean, there are lots of
0: things that are considered derivative. But work. there are a lot yeah. of things. Translations that are considered, are considered derivative works. So True. I mean, yeah. So,
1: fan fiction, particularly, right? And, like, my immortal aside, like, a lot of fan fiction work can be really, really good, right? It's a deep but cut. We, but we all really understand, right, that there is a canon, right? But yeah. unfortunately, right, there's – the best example I have, at least for my generation, I think, is Harry Potter, right? Harry Potter, right, obviously has a story. But because it took so long for every single book to get out, right, fan fiction authors are fans. They're hungry, they want content, and they also want to insert themselves in their world. Yeah. And so, of course, you're going to get insert fiction into Harry Potter, right? And that's a lot of role-playing, right? There's a lot of role-playing fan fiction. There's a lot of, well, this isn't a part of the canon, but in this story, Draco and Jenny end up together. So, like, fuck you, Harry. Yeah. Right? Which I think, and I I liked that story. That was very compelling. I was like, oh, this is very interesting because Harry is just another, you know. Because Harry's
0: boring as dirt, yeah.
1: Yeah, but he's just another James, right? Who was the person that killed, like, uh, that like, sent Severus down the whole thing? Anyway, I, I read Jericho too much of this fan fiction, I don't, I don't but I, all you Draco <laughs> Jenny people out there, I love you when I see you. Um, and I think that, damn it, I really wanted to talk about XCOM and visual novels, but I think that to like, wrap into that um, is at least that when we talk about the canon literarily, we know that there's book canons out there. I think that we're now inserting a world, right, where the video games have a canon too. But what's interesting is if you're playing a Bioware game, right, yeah. like Dragon Age, the canon is very, even in Inquisition, where you have multiple endings, okay? Like I'm yeah. talking multiple. Um, They're all character specific. And there is still a canon story, right? Yeah. You're the hero. You save the day regardless of your choices. There's nothing wrong with that right and i think that is very traditional and i quite like that model as a writer in that i know the ending i'm going to get mm. right i'm not going to have several permutated endings and as a developer it's like i can deliver on that but what baldurs yeah. gate has done here is something where it's actively taken the choices of your characters and actively made them go this is now a multi permutated ending this yeah. is a game that can have truly right the canon as nicholas has it for his run through
0: well not just not just the can so like
1: well a canon in yeah you know a I mean? canon like, in, in the brain. sense
0: that like that was the through line that i took to the end of the game but it's also important to note to sort of bustress your point about like safe states and their relationship to sort of like fan fiction is that i also played out that betrayal a little bit and saved after it so that way if i want to go back and play things out from that perspective, I can't. And so in that sense, the save state, it's not save scumming, it's doing precisely what we were saying earlier about this relationship between like scaffolding and choice and sort of the way in which freedom actually works as sort of like a facilitation rather than just a like removal of some oppressive force. Because now what I have done in creating that save state for myself after that drastic thing happened is now I can also, in addition to sort of the thing that I did in terms of my campaign in the longer sense, I can now go back and play that through a little bit and see what happens. So like there is a kind of fan fictiony element to that. I can see, like I can compose for myself an alternative storyline that involves the betrayal of this character, even though that's not the one I went with initially. And so that's not safe scumming at all. That's literally doing for yourself as a player what the game itself is already doing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, and I, exactly right. And I think that, I don't know, I think that people will still say it's safe scumming a little bit but i am glad that we understand and recognize at least more now as an industry and i hope as like gamers that like we are a save state is so mm-hmm. critical to a game with multiple permutations like this like it's so yeah. critical to well to saving player's choices and making them matter and letting them go back right and make a choice that fits their headcanon yeah. i don't think it works for say every property right like halo is probably even if it had multiple permutations like this Would probably not end up right in a okay. Well, Master Chief took path A, and so path B got everyone died, and I want to see those, you know, people or whatever. Right. But what I would say is that, like, it is something that, at least for like this role playing game, if I did have the ability, right, to go back into it, this is obviously changing the game Halo entirely. Yeah. um, But Master Chief is important, right? And he's a soldier. If I was a soldier, right, and I got some characters killed along the way, it would be interesting to say, okay, let me save. Let me name this save you know path a saved Lila killed the crew yeah I saved one right killed many let me go back killed Lila saved crew right and now I've got this weird I've got this two binary that I can go okay, let me play this a little bit right this also assumes you can rename your save files which I think is incredibly important yeah for this types of these types of games um, because that's basically I've saved every single fight everyone turns very hard
0: yeah so i
1: have one ally he sucks <laughs> not still very hard
0: so Shadow heart
1: like is not a good character for me right <laughs> now. like you know what i mean like yeah, yeah, i yeah. thought i can do that so so to wrap this up nicholas where, where do we want to go well
0: to transition into sort of talking about um more systemic things like sort of visual novel like visual novel aspects and sort of more tactic turn-based stuff um i would note that So some friends of ours at Square Weasel Studios have made a brilliant visual novel called um, The Chronicles of Tel The Remainder that is shortly going to have an expanded version come out um, because their Kickstarter was fully funded. Um, And that game in particular does a really amazing job of sort of showing the player why thinking about save states precisely in this way that we're talking about is so important. And it's because that logic... Of gameplay comes from visual novels. Um, a couple a week ago when I was talking to Lauren, I joked that like, you know, Baldur's Gate 3 is essentially like somebody was playing XCOM and thought to themselves, hey, what if this were a visual novel? <laughs> and the thing is, like, even though that I was being kind of snarky, there is a really important way in which that works in this game. Because yes, you have the sort of like core DD influenced turn based combat mechanics but you also have all of these elements in the game that are so obviously taken from visual novels and so for all of those people out there who crap on visual novels all the time literally the game you love wouldn't exist if it weren't for the extremely brilliant like what essentially like narrative system designers who over time have come up with these things and like created not just the like the conceptual framework for how to design them, but also how the math works. Because like the way the math works for skill checks in Baldur's Gate 3, like you have exact replica, in fact, the precursors of that in things like RenPy. And also even in Twine, you can do skill checks in Twine.
1: You can do skill checks in Twine. So everybody who's like, Twine is not real, I'm done with you. You are no longer (laughs) my friend. Goodbye forever. Um, You can do skill checks in Twine
0: yeah and the skill checks are so fundamental to how Baldur's gate sort of constructs an engaging form of like dial because in- dialogues aren't just like okay i'm going to click through some branches in a tree they are encounters they are encounters designed in the same way that combat encounters are thought of like you actually cause, because it's not just that like So, you know, if you think of a game like, say, you know, like the Fallout series where like particular like dialogue options become available to you based on like particular stats that you may have. This is very different because the thing is you can have a character who doesn't necessarily have particularly good stats for, say, like a charisma check or a perception check or an insight or whatever, deception. However, you can build a party around them that you can then juice up those those checks through various spells through various bi- abilities through like bardic inspirations through you know spells like guidance or um special abilities like uh dark one's own luck which i believe is the fiend dark, one's warlock. Blessing. dark one's blessing sorry yeah which is the fiend warlock one and so like you can you can put all of these things together such that you can then manipulate dialogue encounters and dialogue skill checks in the same way that you manipulate combat encounters
1: yeah it's it's really fundamentally, it's very powerful. And I think for me, the XCOM thing about it is that like you do have like this tactical awareness of not just the skill checks and dialogue, but like those skill checks and dialogue could make combat, right? Go more or less uh, like, I guess I was going to say exciting. No, but I mean like difficult. There we yeah, go. Yeah, combat
0: is deadly in the same way that it's deadly in XCOM. Like- yeah,
1: it's, it is very dead. And this is not, and it scales over time. Like I've been playing Larian games for a while, and I would say that for me, I'm like, some encounters, I'm like, wow, these are just typical, standard, like, this is very easy for me. But yeah. other encounters, like the one that I'm trying to make as easy as possible, uh, that I ended up avoiding completely because I long rested halfway through, Yeah, uh, is... Um, I also think as an exploration check. So, like, anyway, I could go into... Oh, I, I, well, yeah, because,
0: well, I mean, there are, there are combat yeah. encounters in Act 2 in particular where if you don't approach them very tactically and very skillfully and also set up your party in ways where you may need to, like, I don't know, uh, kite particular characters, you will get one shot. Like, you
1: will get one shot. And you, I
0: you cannot survive the amount of damage that is done.
1: <laughs> and so I think that like to look at the skill checks, looking at visual novels, looking at kind of all of this, to kind of encapsulate this and wrap it up. I think the biggest thing that I want to end on, and then I'll let Nicholas wrap us up as well, is that for me, Baldur's Gate 3, it's not that it changes the landscape, but that it shows what a well-resourced and large development team right, can accomplish. With something that has already been shown by our indie development friends, like uh, Squirrel Weasel Studios, like Disco Elysium, yeah. right, um, as well as like from other well-funded, well-researched companies like XCOM, right. Yeah. I think that you can see this happening in one way or the other, but only with right this kind of team of developers that are all focused around this one goal,
2: right. Yeah.
1: Uh, this is this is what it can. This is what it can do. So for me, it's not that it changed to the landscape but it finally exposed right this huge like a huge aspect of mass appeal gamers to, to a landscape that already existed and built right Baldur's Gate inside of it and said here please play this thing that is just a collection of every other game out there so my <laughs> hope is that it it makes people play other games, right? That's the, that's yeah. the hope of every developer, I think. Right? Yeah. When you see a title like this, that for me, it's hey guys, if you really like this, you should play Disco Elysium. Like, what yeah. Disco Elysium is nothing like Baldur's Gate, Lauren. Ah, but ha, right. Ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you like Baldur's Gate, you should go play XCOM. Like, I think this is a game that lifts up all other games. Like, that's that's what every game developer wants to see. And that's that's for me. That's what Baldur's Gate is. So, Nicholas, please tell us what is Baldur's Gate for you.
0: For me. It, it It is that, but it's also like, I, I mean, I do worry that like the singularity of the experience can't really be produced be- precisely because of the complexity. Um, I like the idea that it lifts up all of these other like smaller games, maybe at like double A studios or even sort of like independent studios precisely because you should, you should just play a wider variety of games, generally speaking. But like a game like Baldur's Gate 3 really isn't possible outside of the support of a really large mainstream studio and Larian basically had to become a large mainstream studio in order to support this game they like their staff went up to like i think they have over like 400 employees they have 450
1: now 450 employees just now.
0: to work on this game like <laughs> and so so like that's what a monumental undertaking it is but i appreciate i appreciate things like that i appreciate things like um, even though I, I find fault with a lot of aspects of uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, like, it is an incredible accomplishment. Like, it is a visual spectacle. Like, there should be both tiny little games that make you feel a little thing for an hour or two, and there should also be 100-hour games that are just, like, magnum opuses. Magnum opera, but magnum opuses. And so, with that in mind, and sort of the idea that sort of, like, Baldur's Gate 3 can be the game that sort of, like cradles and loves all other games i want to thank you all for listening to the furidashi podcast um, Lauren and I are going to be continuing to talk about baldur's gate 3 but also more generally about the relationship between tabletop and video games and sort of the translation between the two of them in our patreon episode so you can go on over to patreon.com forward slash dashi. And if you sign up for five dollars a month you will get access to not only that episode but now quite a lot <laughs> of bonus episodes as well um, if that, that that's just too expensive for you or you're having you know you having a hard time financially speaking you can leave a review for us and a rating on itunes that really helps us out you can mention mention us on social media and be like hey i listened to this fantastic podcast and these two are brilliant and sexy and (laughs) and various various other complimentary things please refrain from too many critical things but even being critical of us actually helps you know get the word out and we do appreciate that you can follow lauren um, on twitter Well, for a little while longer (laughs) at the Lauren Ash. I am um, at Academicality. Uh, The podcast is at Furidashi Pod. And with all of that in mind, I want to say thank you for joining us this time around. And go make a lot of bad choices in life.